Let us pray. Oh, blessed God, our Father, open now to us the words of Thy sacred herald. On the mountain's top appearing, declaring the great deliverance for Zion, found in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that eternal glory which shall be shown in us. Heavenly Father, have mercy upon us now as we open the pages of Thy precious Scriptures and teach us from them that we might know the things that are freely given to us of Thee, which eye hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man those things that You have for them that love Thee. We cease from mourning because Thou hast sent deliverance, and we thank Thee for the hope that we have in Your Word. O Lord, increase our faith and our hope in this hour. In Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Open the precious Word of God to the 8th chapter of Romans. We've already spent good time together in God's Word in Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12 and Psalm 102. And any hearing this sermon in another setting, I encourage you to go to those places. Hebrews 10, 34 through 37. Hebrews 11, 24 through 27. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, all of which describe the long-term, eternal perspective of God's saints who were able to endure difficulties, troubles, suffering, and persecution in this life because they knew what was in store for them in heaven. And I hope that you will read Psalm 102 and see there the psalmist comforted himself by the eternal nature of the living God, that though his days were shortened and though they were filled with trouble, he rejoiced in the set time of God's deliverance, and that that deliverance would extend to his children as well. And I believe every word of God. Amen. Romans chapter 8. I read to you verses 14 through 18. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon 
that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Amen and amen. Thank you, Lord, for these precious words. My dear brethren, you can read the book of Acts, all 28 chapters, and you will find no mention of our adoption as the sons of God. You can read Romans through the 13th verse of this 8th chapter, and there's no mention of our adoption as the sons of God. But when you come to the 14th verse, where our beloved brother Paul makes a transition from describing the spirit of God's work in the justified saints of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have mentioned to us the sons of God. And from there, the apostle takes up a consideration that God has indeed adopted us. And not only has he done so that we need to rely on the written record of Scripture, he has put his spirit in our hearts that testifies to our spirits that we are the sons of God. That 14th verse, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, that has been his topic to that 14th verse. From the first verse, when he said, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. If you are walking after the Spirit, that means the Spirit is leading you. The 14th verse, in its first half, is the same as the first verse, and what's in between is just explanatory material explaining that fact. But then in this 14th verse, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. This is a new concept. This is a new word. They are no longer the justified ones before God. They are the sons of God. Verse 1 was, there is therefore now no condemnation. That means you're innocent before God. But innocence doesn't make you a son. This 14th verse is new. It's precious. It's the capstone of salvation. We were justified so that we could be adopted. Because the long-term goal of God that embodied all of salvation is to make us His children and to give us Everything he has is our inheritance. And we shall possess the heavens and the earth with the Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing the Lord Jesus Christ does not own, lock, stock, and barrel, is God himself. And we'll be joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. Good spell. Good news. Glad tidings that God has given us. Praise the Lord. And so the apostle then begins to explain his 14th verse and what he introduced by saying they are the sons of God. They are not just justified. They are not just redeemed. They are not just reconciled. All these words have been used thus far in Romans. They are not just atoned for. They are the sons of God. 
And so we read in that 15th verse that God has given us the spirit of adoption that causes us from the inside out, in agreement with the pages of Scripture, He did author both. The preparation of the hearted man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And so are these words on the pages of your Bible. Same Spirit. And so He causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. A double repetition of the name of the title of God to us, His adopted children. One in a Chaldean word brought into Greek, Abba. And one, our English word, translated, Father. Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, verse 16. And brethren, verse 17 told us that if we're children, then there's something else that logically follows. If children, then heirs. Where there's a real father involved, being his son means there's inheritance. We went over all this. I'm not going to repeat it. But the Bible teaches it, and nature teaches it. The children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. This is God's order. And so a good father does that, and so we can logically make this extension. If children, then heirs. And if we're children of God, then we're heirs of God. If we're a son of God, and we're an heir of God, and Jesus is a son of God, then we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We're both going to inherit everything God has. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Can you hear it? Can you understand it? Is it better than anything you own right now? What piece of junk did you drive to get here? What dilapidated, falling down piece of junk do you live in when you drive home? In comparison to the mansions that are being made in heaven and the mode of transportation that God has employed, He hasn't needed Detroit or Japan to provide His transportation. Just ask Philip when he came up out of the water in the middle of the desert at an oasis and there was no one handy to preach to, he was found at Azotus preaching. I don't know how else to tell you how good it is to read a verse like the 17th verse and to see the simple logic that if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. Because we're children of God, therefore we're His heirs. So whatever He owns, we possess. We inherit. We inherit right along with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at the second half of that verse, however. The second half of the 17th verse, If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. I already taught you this three weeks ago. We have taken a two-week sabbatical. We have taken a two-week departure from Romans 8, in order to cover adoption more thoroughly. But here in this 17th verse, we have not a condition in order to become a son of God, but a statement of evidence that if you are suffering for the cause of Jesus Christ out of faith toward Him, you will be glorified together with Him as well. I wish all these people who love the if-then statements in the Bible would come here, because this verse teaches the monasticism of the Roman Catholic Church. That unless you're beating yourself and hauling crosses around, there's no hope of heaven for you. 
But this is not a condition in order to become a son of God. If you want a condition for being a son of God, but even that isn't a condition. In verse 14, that's evidence. If you're led by the Spirit of God, it's evidence you're a son of God. If you're suffering, it's evidence that you're going to be glorified together with Jesus Christ, your joint heir of God. Enough has been said already on that. Let us come to the 18th verse. I know what time it is, and I pray that you'll allow me to go at whatever pace the Lord leads me through this verse. But I am going to slow things down until the 39th verse. And I do not care how long this takes. These 25 verses, from the 14th verse to the 39th verse, are the pinnacle of Romans. They're wonderful verses to us. Look at the declarations we've already covered in a few words of introduction. Verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The suffering had already been introduced in that 17th verse in the second half. That's why we have a coordinating conjunction for introducing verse 18 and explaining to us that if we suffer with Him, we're going to be glorified together. And so a Christian as a child of God thinks, well, why do I have to suffer? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to suffer as a Christian? Even if I am going to be glorified with Christ later, is it worth it? The difference is so great, they do not deserve to be compared. The numbers are so different, they do not belong on the same spreadsheet. The accounting program, which does the reckoning, and that's what the word reckon means, should not compute them together because there is no comparison. They are not worthy to be compared. There is no suffering that you can endure in this life that should even be compared to heaven. And the man who said it suffered more than you even know how to imagine suffering. You will never nor can you even comprehend suffering like the Apostle Paul. Do I need to turn you to his resume? He had a multi-paged resume, the majority of which is found in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. And one of the pages in his multi-page resume was sufferings. And he listed, Five times was I beaten by the Jews, forty stripes save one. Three times was I beaten with rods. Thrice was I shipwrecked. I was a day and a night in the deep. Imprisoned. In perils of robbers. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the city. And on and on he goes. And he says on top of all that, the care of all the churches. And when you had a church like Corinth that despised him from a distance that took his ministry when he was there and rejoiced in hope of the glory of God. But when he left, they let in false teachers that came out of Jerusalem who mocked Paul as not having real authority from God and that he was nothing, that his speech was contemptible, he was base in appearance, and they didn't need to listen to him. And these false teachers milked that crowd for what they could take from them. Care of all the churches. 
And then he goes on to say, it was so bad that one time when I was in Damascus, they sealed off the city because they were going to capture me. And I was let down a basket out of a window and escaped. How glorious is my life. I had to flee out of Damascus in a basket. Let down over a wall. So when he tells you that I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared, he knows what he's talking about. For I reckon. Now that's a southern expression. Never heard it up north until you read the Bible or you came south. But what does the word reckon mean? It means to count or to account for things. Right. It's, it is used extensively in some chapters in the book of Leviticus that takes some very careful calculating. If there was a year of release when every debtor was freed from their debts and every transaction was completed with no further payments, do you know that there had to be some careful reckoning made before you loaned things? Because if you were six and a half years away from the year of release, that's different than being six and a half weeks away from the year of release. That takes some reckoning. Now, I happen to like financial analysis. Paul analyzed and compared. He did a comparison analysis. Instead of a buy or lease analysis for a company on whether they should buy some heavy piece of capital equipment, or whether they should lease it, he did a comparison. What is the value of present suffering versus the value of future glory with Christ? Right. It's a reckoning. It's a financial comparison. It's trying to put a number on the two and see how they compare. I praise God for using language that I can, I can get right down to. You know, here's a piece of paper on the left-hand side. It says human suffering in the present time. On the other side, it says glory with Christ for eternity. And then you start filling it in. And Paul says it does. it's not worthy to be put in the same piece of paper. Our little trials and our little bit of suffering in this time is not worthy to be compared to what's coming for us. For I reckon, he analyzed and compared... He had written in the 17th verse that suffering with Christ is going to bring glory. Is that glory worth it? We reckon and we count when we sing a song. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. That is reckoning. And every good child of God, every faithful son of God loves to reckon. And loves to count up the things that God has done for them. Look at Psalm 40. Psalm 40, and I can, I, I can tell you now what's going to happen to this sermon. I don't care. I don't care. These verses are too precious. They are, they are the bedrock of our salvation and our lives, and they will change our lives more than any other subject if we have this hope in us and it is solidly established in our hearts. Mother, can you put up with your hearing aids? And your eyeglasses for a few years? The Lord's got perfect ears and perfect eyes for you forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Psalm 40 and verse 5. I want to encourage you and me 
that we will do more reckoning in our lives. We will do more comparative analysis and financial estimation and cost studies to show the value of what God's done for us compared to the little sacrifices that we make. David tried it in the 40th Psalm in verse 5. Many. I start the verse again. Many. O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to usward. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. The financial system fails. The accounting program fails. It grinds to a halt. It cannot compute. Unknown result. It cannot compare. It cannot measure up in order. All that God had done for David. Had David David suffered some in his life? David suffered extensively in his life. But when he counted up his blessings and named them one by one, which is reckoning, he found out that many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works toward me and us, and thy thoughts toward us. I cannot reckon them. And if thou were to declare and speak about them, they cannot be numbered up to thee. In the fifth verse, praise the Lord. Let's make sure we take time in our lives to reckon of what God has done for us. When Paul makes a reckoning, and he's the one that says he's reckoning in Romans 8.18, For I reckon, not you should reckon, but for I reckon. Paul was inspired in his comparative analysis. He was inspired. And we should always remember that. You know, Solomon was more qualified to write Proverbs and Ecclesiastes than any other man that's ever lived. And therefore, when Solomon writes Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and he gives us rules for success and he describes a philosophy of life that works, we believe him because he was the most qualified man that God ever placed on this planet outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is always to be understood, to write such things. But we still fall back on the fact that they are inspired. It is wisdom from heaven in the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Now, Paul suffered more in the cause of Christ than any other. And I hope I've mentioned enough things from 2 Corinthians 11 to you to remind you of what the page called sufferings in his resume looked like. But I add to it what it says in the 12th chapter when it says because of the visions he had of heaven, God gave him a messenger of Satan to buffet him. And he prayed to God three times to have it removed. Now if a man who cheerfully endured suffering was praying for this particular messenger of Satan, a thorn in the flesh, to be taken away from him, it was painful. It was troublesome. And yet it remained. So he understood suffering. Now he also understood a glimpse of heaven. See, God made perfect writers for Scripture. There's one author, but there's perfect writers. 
Solomon is the perfect writer for Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. If you want to read about financial success, you want to read Proverbs. It's inspired. If you want to read about a philosophy, you want to read Ecclesiastes because Solomon wrote it and it was inspired. The Apostle Paul had a glimpse of heaven because in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, I knew a man in Christ once above 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I can't remember, but I knew a man in Christ who was received up into the third heaven and saw things that are not lawful to utter. I was told I couldn't come back and tell you about them. So, did Paul have a basis for writing the 18th verse of the 8th chapter of the epistle to the Romans? He had a wonderful basis. Praise God he did. And you know what he said? He said, for I reckon that they're not worthy to be compared. Our faith is a very reasonable faith. Our faith is a very logical faith. Our faith should be measured logically just like Paul did. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. I've quoted this to you many times for the same purpose. But I want you to recognize that when Paul uses the word reckon, he is making a careful comparison and an analysis of how these two relate to each other. Now, not only are you going to have suffering in life, you're going to have a few goodies thrown your way. But does the suffering and the goodies, or do the goodies make up for the suffering, how do they compare either one to what's to be revealed to us when we're in heaven glorified with Christ, joint heirs of everything God owns? They don't compare. It doesn't compute. 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ constraineth us. The love of Jesus Christ for us restricts us and tightens us and directs us as to how we should live. It constrains us to live one way. Because we thus judge, like the word reckon, we thus judge, we logically progress this way in our thinking. If one died for all, if Jesus Christ died for all His elect, then all His elect were dead and under a sentence of death. And that He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. If Jesus Christ had to die for you, that means a sentence of death was upon you. Since He died for you and gave you life, you should spend your life living for Him who died for you. That is a very reasonable, logical approach to the gift of salvation. The Apostle Paul did it like no other. I labored more abundantly than they all. He sold himself out to the Lord Jesus Christ, and so should we. And so when we come to the, when we look in verse 18 of Romans 8, we see, for I reckon, I pray that we will be reckoning saints. That means making a constant analysis. There are things important to you in your life. You want to achieve some level of success. But if you were to achieve your level of success and then go far beyond what you can't even imagine because you've never known anyone with that kind of success, it still is not worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in you in heaven. So instead of chasing the tinsel dream 
instead of running after the soap bubble, instead of pressing faster on the treadmill of life to reach forth and get something that is going to disappear at the moment of death and will never satisfy your soul, why not step off that treadmill, get down on your knees with the pages of Scripture, and do a little reckoning that as a son of God, loving the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are have in store for you success and riches, promotion and glory, the likes of which nothing on earth can compare. And this is what's been preached in the assembly of saints from the beginning. We get too wrapped up in our lives here, and we should get wrapped up in our life there. Our life here is short, our life there is long, and those words don't do either justice. Our life here is painful, our life there is gloriously filled with pleasures forevermore. And it's how we ought to reckon, and I fear that we don't do enough reckoning. It is the wicked under the influence of the devil that mock religion as a crutch of the people. That's because those men will spend an eternity in hell because they're under the influence of the devil for even thinking such things. We have the truth of the present life and we have the truth of the next life and they don't know either. Those are communists. Their system stinks. It has never worked and it never will work. They can't even figure out this life. We have both figured out. Because God our Father told us the truth about both. And God our Father sits in heaven and looks from the height of His sanctuary and scoffs on communist nations and grinds them. Pagans are born pagans and die pagans. Christians aren't communists. They can't even figure out this life. I'm speaking of commies. Christians know this life, even the practical issues of how to make a living and how to make a nation prosperous. And they know about the next life, which far exceeds their knowledge of this life. Because the next is so much greater. The wicked that write such things and the devil that motivates them have no future or hope. So let them vainly mock us all they wish. They have no hope. The devil knows his future. He knows it very well. His suffering is all in the future in comparison to the limited freedom that he's enjoying now. It is our wisdom to wisely measure and compare this life against the next, lest we be deceived by the world's pleasures or the lives of the wicked. Look at Psalm 17 with me. Psalm 17. For I reckon, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. I want to show you how important it is that we do reckoning in our lives. Psalm 17, David is describing his enemies in the latter half of this psalm. In verse 12, you can see him describing them as a lion. He's telling the Lord to arise and to disappoint him. That is, to disappoint his enemy in the 13th verse. And here's how he describes them in the 14th. From men 
which are thy hand, O Lord, from men of the world, which have their portion in this life, and whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasure, they are full of children, and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. Those are the men who have their heaven now, and the lake of fire for eternity. But look at the 15th verse. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. I will not be satisfied being made king of Israel. I will not be satisfied being made king of Israel and setting my fortresses on the Euphrates River and the Nile River and on the eastern side of the Jordan and on the Mediterranean. Those are the dimensions of David's kingdom. I will not be satisfied with that. I will not be satisfied with the songs of my nation. I will not be satisfied that my name is spoken of in all the homes of Israel. I'll not even be satisfied that I penned many of the Psalms. I'll not be satisfied that I'm the sweet psalmist of Israel or the man after God's own heart. I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. David, the, David knew obscurely that he was going to look like the Lord Jesus Christ someday. His son. Just like we're taught in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. Do you see the comparison that David made in these two verses? They are having their heaven now. Let them have it. They get, they get another buck an hour. Oh, bless their hearts. You know, it's a doctrine. He makes another 50,000 a year. Well, how, what do you think President Obama takes out of that 50,000? What do you think his accountant takes out of that 50000 What do you think liability insurance takes out of that 50000 And they're going to leave it all. Right. And it's frustrating to them when they have it. They're as worried about the health care package that was passed in Washington as anyone. They worry. They worry what's going to happen. Are we going to be reduced to $100 a month like physicians in Russia? Where communism works so well that if you don't bring a case of vodka, you're not having surgery today. But look at verse 15. As for me, they are different. We have two different worldviews. We have two different views of life. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I'm going to stand before you clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to stand before you in their wickedness. They'll be cast out of your sight. I'll be received into your sight. And I'll be satisfied when I awake from the sleep of death with thy likeness. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the message that the world knows nothing about. Right. Look at 37. 37.1 O Lord God... We confess that our flesh is so strong and our spirits so weak 
that we get attracted by all the things of this life and we neglect the things of the next life which are so much greater they are not worthy to be compared. Help us to think and to live better. Verse 1 of Psalm 37, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Come over to verse 9. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. How many acres do you have right now? Is it prime property? Or if anything of value came in, would you, would they just kind of, uh, bulldoze your dwelling place and put something of value there? You know, we're going to inherit the earth. Go calc, why don't you go home and get a calculator out and find out the total square, the total acres, acreage of the world. We're going to inherit the world. I believe every word. If I don't believe every word, we should close up and go home. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. How does that sound? We'll have a world where we're entirely at peace, because it's going to be made up of the children of God, and the wicked will be in the lake of fire, where they can howl and scream and be tormented forever and ever and ever. This is the blessing of the righteous. And so the psalmist tells us, don't fret because of evildoers. Don't be envious of the workers of iniquity. Look at Psalm 49. Psalm 49. If we made it no further in this first assembly, and we're not going to, for I reckon. Because we need to make sure that we're living reckoned lives. Are you reckoning how important school is compared to how important Christ is? Are you reckoning how important bodily exercise in order to add one inch to your biceps with months of labor and thousands of dollars of nutrients is worth it compared to Christ and the things of heaven? Is it a marriage? Is it love? Is it children? There is no marriage in heaven. It's the Lord. And He alone. And all the things of heaven. Psalm 49 is about the rich. And their inward thoughts that they're going to live forever. Verse 9, He should still live forever and not see corruption. Verse 11, their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever. Verse 13, this their way is their folly, yet their posterity approve their sayings. You go to school and you read their stinking literature books that are filled with nothing but lies. Their philosophy books at the collegiate level, filled with lies. They do not know the purpose for man. They do not know why we are here, how we got here, where we are going, and the value of a life. Verse 14, like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. And there's one verse in this psalm that's positive. It's the 15th verse. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. 
Selah. They're just thrown in the grave like sheep. Death's going to consume them, and they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. We die and we awake in His likeness, and He receives us into eternal glory with our inheritance as the sons of God. For I reckon, I'm sorry I don't know how to make progress farther in this verse of Romans 8.18, but I hope that you will think about reckoning your life. The young people tonight, you're going to hear about martyrs, and I want to tell you something. They knew how to reckon. They reckoned that eternal life and the glory that would be revealed in them and eternity with the Lord was very well worth the trade of a little bit of pain now. And I'll leave the appropriate descriptions of that pain to your speaker tonight. I'm very excited that he's excited about the topic. We didn't plan any of this. It's perfect. Romans 8.18, in the house of God, and martyrs around a bonfire tonight. I'll give a bonus to the youth director if he'll move the youth close enough to the fire so that they'll at least know what it might have felt like. Well, thank you. I thought maybe you were going to call the police on me. Not not you, brother, but... You know when your finger gets near a candle? And, it, and there's that one second where it bites. The flame bites. The heat bites. Yes. Here's what the Word of God has to say to us, that we would be better reckoners. Look at Psalm 73. Psalm 73, for I reckon... And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. Joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. Well now, is it worth it? Is it worth it to be a son of God and have to suffer a little bit in this life? I don't know anyone in this room suffering much anyway. But uh, no, don't tell me about your sufferings. I don't know anyone in this room that's suffering much anyway. So we don't fit Romans 8, 17 and 18 like Paul fit it. And we still get eternal glory. Praise the Lord. He's so merciful to us. He's so abundant in mercy. Psalm 73. Verse 3. Same type of a psalm. I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph just about backslid all the way to deny his religion. He, he's really messed up. This is David's song leader. I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But then he goes into the sanctuary and he hears a sermon from Romans 8, 18. And he does some reckoning. And we can read about it in verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. I was reminded where the wicked are going. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation? As in a moment! Exclamation point. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins, because the reckoning was bearing fruit in my life. So foolish was I and ignorant, 
I was as a beast before thee to envy those wicked men. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. How does that sound like a life? Having God walk through this world with you. We're strangers and pilgrims here. And God walks through it with us. Gives us counsel from His Word. And then receives us into glory with delight in His face. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And He'll despise the wicked. What a contrast. What a difference. For I reckon. Look at Proverbs 10.28. Help me close. Proverbs 10.28, how do we help you close? Turn, turn. 10.28, the hope of the righteous shall be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked shall perish. The wicked have their expectations, hopes, and plans. They will not achieve them. Alexander the Great gives me so much pleasure to read about that idiot and his drunkenness and his orgies, men and women. He couldn't figure it out. Listen, Alexander didn't know whether a woman was better than a man. I rejoice. All of his plans on what he was going to do in this world that he had conquered, he didn't accomplish anything, and his seed was utterly cut off. Praise God. Believe all these verses. It doesn't matter how much might, how much power, and whether you call yourself great like Muhammad Ali, or others call you great like Alexander, the son of Philip of Macedon. The Lord will bring them to an end. 10.28 The hope of the righteous shall be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked shall perish. We're going to end up glad in heaven. They're going to end up perishing in hell fire. Proverbs 11, verse 7. When a wicked man dieth, his expectation shall perish. You're getting a commentary on 10.28. When a wicked man dieth, his expectation shall perish, and the hope of unjust men perisheth. Their expectation and their hope disappears. The righteous is delivered out of trouble, and the wicked cometh in his stead. You know what that means? The righteous is taken away from the trouble, and God puts the wicked into that trouble. 14.32 in the book of Proverbs. The wise man, the king of Israel, Solomon, 14.32, the wicked is driven away in his wickedness, but the righteous hath hope in his death. 23.17, this is how Christians think. This is a Christian's worldview and a view of their life and how they measure their efforts and their accomplishments. 23.17, let not thine heart envy sinners, But be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long, for surely there is an end, and thine expectation shall not be cut off. Now look at that. The wicked, their expectation is cut off. The righteous, their expectation is not cut off. We will achieve all of our goals. Because your little goals down here, if you don't achieve them, because you don't serve Him faithfully here, you're going to achieve them all there. But the expectation of the wicked is cut off. There are so many more verses like this. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Hurry, help me close. Matthew chapter 5. At least we've got a few words done in the 18th verse. 
of Romans 8. This is how you ought to live with these thoughts so real in you. Matthew chapter 5 verse 10, blessed, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you believe that verse enough that it was the only verse in the Bible you would put up with any amount of persecution from anyone? Because of that text? Blessed. If God says, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. Do you believe that? Blessed. If God says blessed, is the blessing decent? Can you buy it at Walmart? Can you buy it at Macy's? Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. And here's the explanation. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. For my sake. Did the Apostle Paul fit that verse? Look at what it tells them him to do. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Martyrs did it. They cheerfully went to their deaths. The apostle did it with his life. I've read to you Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 11, where we saw in Hebrews 10 that they joyfully took the spoiling of their goods because they knew in heaven they had a better Do you think there's a better house up there than the one you're living in? A better and an enduring substance. Do you have to make repairs to your place? Don't you hate M&R? Maintenance and repair. Maintenance and repair. You know, this nation has been drunk on a lie for 50 years about real estate that houses should appreciate in value. Houses should depreciate in value. Because they're falling apart all the time, just like an automobile. When was the last time you bought an automobile that appreciated? Don't tell me about your collector's cars that you have in the garage out behind your home. I've read those passages to you. Brethren, the lesson for this sermon, for I reckon. What are you, how are you reckoning your life? How are you reckoning your family's life? And are you teaching your children how to reckon properly? Do my children hear me loud and clear? For I reckon. And we should be reckoning everything that God has done. David said many, O Lord my God, are thy works and thy wonderful works toward me. Let's make sure that we are reckoning. We are making a proper comparison. And we say, I'm not going to be envious. That is not my priority in life. This is my priority. That is my goal. I want to live for the Lord now and be with the Lord forever. I don't care if there's suffering involved or not. The glory that is going to be revealed written by a wise man who had tasted both, said by inspiration, they are not worthy to be compared. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.